actors who can't get married, guillotine-themed jewelry, and a day dedicated to tuna. Today on Footnoting History, it's part two of our French Revolution countdown. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. Today, we will be doing part two of our top 10 things about the French Revolution countdown with my co-host, Christine. We recorded this podcast at the same time as our first podcast on the French Revolution. So we'll dive right in with our number five. So our number five topic for the French Revolution has to do with a topic that's near and dear to my heart, actors. As we discussed in our last podcast, the French Revolution saw bit of a conflict between the church and the government as far as what their jurisdiction was. Well, turns out that the church had some very strict canon law regarding actors. Turns out if you were an actor, you were not allowed to marry because being an actor was obviously something that was considered highly immoral. So even though in 1789, you had the National Assembly recognize the fact that actors deserve civil rights, the canon law still claimed that they were immoral. There was a very, very famous actor, Francois Talma, who was loved by pretty much everybody in the world, and he and his intended decided that they wanted to get married. But the church decided that there was no way they were going to post his bans or bless his marriage because he was an actor. This, understandably, made Talma very angry, And he went around and made several denouncements of the church in front of the National Assembly, demanding that actors should be able to have their marriages recognized by the church and blessed. Still, no matter what they tried to do, the church did not grant him what he wanted fast enough. So he had a civil marriage, but still wanted to get his marriage blessed and the children that he eventually had to become legitimized and be baptized. So, you know... Like any good actor does, he found himself a loophole and got what he wanted. (laughs) You know, the only way to get himself blessed and his marriage and his family to all be seen as accepted, he had to say that he was denouncing his job as an immoral actor. To do that would have meant giving up his livelihood. And if he was so famous, could you imagine having your favorite actor say that he had to retire so that he'd be allowed to get married? It's a little strange. But what he did was he waited until the theater that he was currently acting in took a break for Easter. And then he publicly denounced that he was done being an actor so that he could go and he got his marriage blessed, had his children baptized. And then 11 days later, when the theater picked back up after their Easter break, he somehow managed to decide that maybe not being an actor was the wrong life choice. And went right back to what he was doing in the first place. <laughs> Something tells me that he intended to do that. Uh, oh, I don't know. I think he might have. To do that all along. He, he might have had some He actually of, had a change of heart and he then did. had a re-change of heart. He, he might have had a conversion experience and then realized that maybe he wasn't so immoral as an actor after all. It was really important for him to go back to the stage. And he had, you know, he had a very long career because if you read things about um, the theater in the early Napoleonic days, his name still comes up. You know, there was already problems for people who were Jewish or people who were Protestant. So it may seem strange to have an actor, somebody you know, whose job is their problem, trying to expand rights and 
have all of these things come under the jurisdiction of the government. But that's one of the things, though, that the um, that the revolutionary government does whenever it, it takes power from the old regime is that they change marriage law considerably yeah. and they oh, make it much. Well, they make it first of all, they make it um, they make it much easier for you to to get divorced. There is a time later on where they make it so that once you get divorced, you can't remarry the same person. Yeah, because during the French Revolution, when divorce became legalized, there was an influx of people who wanted to get divorced, but then later remarried the same person after they reconciled. Oh, so, yeah. So divorce was just sort of a a way of um, settling so like differences, con- conflict resolution, and then because you know it was something that they could never <laughs> do. It's true though, because it's something that they could never do before. Right. Um, it was extremely. I mean, you you almost. I mean, never got a divorce if your if your marriage was ended. It, you had to apply for an annulment, which had right. to be approved by the Catholic Church. Right. Um, the year after Talman gets his marriage legitimated, after he gets it validated by the Catholic right. uh, and blessed by the Catholic Church, is whenever the civil constitution of the clergy goes into effect and all of these right. reforms. Exactly. The re- revolutionary government starts reforming the Catholic Church. It yeah. makes it it makes it incredibly easy, well, or easier for people to get divorced. Right. You know, but then when Napoleon comes to well, yeah, Nap- that's what I was going to say. Unrelated though to this particular topic, I always found it hysterical that later on under Napoleon, once you get divorced. A man can remarry right away, but a woman has to wait ten months. Um, and uh, yeah, Napoleon makes it much harder for, uh, first of all, much harder for people to get divorced. Under Napoleon, it's more possible to get a divorce than it was before the French Revolution. Yeah. But actually, there are some aspects of of the Napoleonic law which remained in place in France until the twentieth century. A couple of months ago, I sat down and read the Napoleonic Code. I'll never get those hours of my life back. You know, it's interesting, though, that the same actors who weren't allowed to get married in a church and who were fighting for that sort of thing were the people who espouse the revolutionary ideals and pass those on to the people as opposed to performing, you know, Moliere and all of the classical texts. And within that came the parallel between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And you've probably heard the name Benjamin Franklin tossed around once in a while and turned out that in terms of I don't Americans... Know who I know you don't. Turns out that American representations on the French stage were mostly embodied by the image of Benjamin Franklin. He had been well. He was. I mean, he was huge in France uh, whenever he he came over as part of the um, embassy to try and convince the French to join to enter into the revolution on the side of the Americans. I mean, they made him like commemorative plates. I mean, all sorts of stuff with his name on it or his image on it. Exactly. So he was he was viewed as the embodiment of the person who had thrown off the shackles of the monarchy. I mean, other Americans came into it, too. You would occasionally have, you know, your George Washington or your unnamed American person who was just supposed to symbolize that. But Benjamin Franklin was by far France's favorite American. He was the number one American character in French plays, which... Yeah, there was there was one know. in uh, 1791 called The Printer uh, or, or Franklin's Party. Not just... It wasn't a burst of it. It was... Six solid years from 1790 to 1796 where you saw the majority of Americans in place. Now, once the French Revolution ended, there was less need to teach the people about these ideals. So it started to fade a little bit. But you see the height of the French Revolution coincides with the height of appearances of Benjamin Franklin in various plays in all of the little stages throughout France in general. Hey, Nathan. Yeah, Christine. Hey, Christine. Whatever happened to the children of Marie Antoinette and the king? 
That brings us to number four on our top ten countdown. <laughs> what happened? It's something like it's seventeen ninety four. Do you know where your children are? Well, it's more like seventeen ninety five, and uh, well, <gasps> okay. Actually, so wait, if it were seventeen, it's, it's if it's seventeen ninety four, do you know where your children are? Well, it doesn't really matter because Marie Antoinette and Louis the Sixteenth were dead. Well, that was kind of the point. <laughs> This is actually uh, – really, this is, this is a sad one because uh, in June of 1789, the Dauphin, the crown prince and heir to the French throne, uh, dies, Louis-Joseph. And mm-hmm. Louis-Joseph is seven and he dies in June of 1789. And at that point, his younger brother, uh, Louis-Charles, Louis Charles, becomes the Dauphin, becomes the heir to the throne. He is four whenever the revolution begins. Uh, the, whenever, whenever everything sort of goes south for his family and Louis and Marie Antoinette are thrown in jail, eventually Louis is separated from his – Louis XVI is, uh, is separated from his family. He's put on trial. He is beheaded in January of uh, 1793. Marie Antoinette will eventually be beheaded in October of that year. But I have a question. Yeah. Was there a real fear of a rise up in support of the Dauphin? Yes, because after Louis Louis the Sixteenth is beheaded, the royal uh-huh. the, the royalists which remain in France um, declare that his son Louis Charles is now Louis Seventeen. Right. So in their eyes, right, in, in the eyes of, in the eyes of the royalists, Louis Charles is now the king of France. Louis, I mean, it's ext- he's extremely problematic. At the same time, he's a child. He's born in 1785. The revolution begins in 1789. He's four when the revolution re- begins. His right. family is imprisoned in 1792. And so he's, that would make him, what, seven? He's taken from his mother in uh, July of 1793 and put in the care of a cobbler named Antoine Simon and his wife and kept in this prison with them. There are all sorts of stories. We don't have a lot of hard evidence for what happened to the Dauphin during his time in the prison. Which prison was he in, do we know? Uh, Temple. uh, Temple Tower. Because there were so many prisons. Right, right. Well, there's all sorts of propaganda that's, uh, that's put out about the the way that he was treated. He was, mm-hmm. you know, that the soldiers in the prison uh, force-fed him alcohol and forced him to sing the Marseillaise, and that he was just generally very cruelly treated. We do know that he is coerced into accusing his mother and his aunt of sexual molestation because these are among the charges that are levied against Marie Antoinette at her treason trial. Ultimately, he contracts uh, scrofula, which could have been brought about by the, the poor conditions in the prison. The conditions under which Marie Antoinette mm-hmm. is, ke- is kept initially aren't that bad, but he is mistreated and eventually becomes sick and dies of scrofula. At what age? Uh, he dies in 1795 at the age of 10. Aww. Well, for a long time, it wasn't clear if this was actually the prince that had died because it was, I mean, terribly convenient for the revolutionary government, even after the fall of Robespierre and the Thermidorian reaction and the end of the reign of terror, it doesn't do them any good to have the crown prince sort of sitting around. No, of course not. On top of all of that, shortly before he dies... His doctor dies. Mm -hmm. And so there's a question of whether or not – and, you know, he's assigned new doctors. And these are the doctors that are making the identification and performing the autopsy after Mm -hmm. his death. 
After he dies, his, his body is thrown into an unmarked grave. The question is whether or not this is actually the prince, because much as was the case with the princess Anastasia uh, after the Russian uh-huh. Revolution and the massacre of the Romanov family, there will be at least three people over the course of the 19th century, and the most famous one is named uh, Naundorf, will claim mm-hmm. to be the lost Dauphin, just like people claim to be the princess Anastasia. However, uh, the heart of the body was preserved okay. and eventually, okay. eventually surfaces – uh, they do DNA testing on it in the year 2000, and by comparing it with results from relatives, they determine that this is the this is the heart within a certain percentage points genetic match of Louis Charles, and he's given a uh, formal burial in 2004, where he's buried in Saint Denis next to his parents. I've never been there. Saint Denis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very pretty, but they charge you an exorbitant amount of money to get in to see the back half of the church. Oh, sure. They all do that type of thing. That's well, they, and that's that's, that's the other thing. That's the other thing is that um, Saint-Denis is, of course, the, the traditional burial place of um, a large number of the French monarchy. And during the revolution, a lot of those graves are desecrated and their bones were dug up. Right. And if you go to, to Saint-Denis today, they have sort of this plaque saying, this is everybody who mm-hmm. is buried here, but we've only recovered, you know. We don't know where they are. Well, we either That's we don't know we don't know who they are or the, the bones were all thrown to sort of thrown together and they're somewhere right. they're somewhere in the pile behind this wall. <laughs> and so the graves are, are sort of unmarked. Definitely none of the bodies are still in the uh, in the tombs, or I'll, I'll, I don't think a significant number of them are in the tombs. So if you go and you know you're seeing so and so sepulcher, they're not inside right. of it. They're they're behind a wall somewhere. But right. But sometimes that's all. You know, you have to you have to settle for what you can get. Right. Now I also want to say a little bit about the daughter, um, Marie Therese Charlotte. Uh, she will actually be the only member of the royal family to survive the French Revolution. After her brother, the Dauphin, Louis, Louis Charles, is taken away, she is allowed to stay with her mother for one more month until her mother is taken away uh, from Temple Tower Prison and placed in the Conciergerie. Uh, she remains with her aunt for one more month, and then her aunt is taken away. She is kept in Temple along with her brother, um, but was, of course, kept separate from him. Uh, she is told nothing of the fate of any of her family until the summer of 1795, by which point all of her family, her father, her mother, her aunt, and her brother were all dead. And in fact, um, her mother and aunt had been executed two years previously, and she had never been told. Her brother had just died a couple of months before. She was finally set free in 1795 and fled to Austria. Of course, remember, Marie Antoinette is Austrian. Uh, this is where her family is. And she's actually able to, in Austria, reconnect with her uncle, Louis XVI's younger brother. And he arranges a marriage between uh, Maria Therese Charlotte and his son. So she married her cousin. For the rest of the revolution uh, and through the Napoleonic era, she will remain in exile and will sort of wander around the courts of Europe. They spend some time in Austria, some time in uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, they will eventually end up in England, and they are finally able to return to France after the abdication of Napoleon in 1814, at which point the Bourbon monarchy is restored and her uncle becomes officially Louis XVIII. Eventually, though, in 1830, the Bourbon monarchy is once again forced out of France 
Uh, she and her husband are both made to sign a document formally abdicating any claim to the throne of France. And she's once again forced to sort of wander the courts of, of Europe. She spends some time in Edinburgh and in Prague. Eventually, her husband dies of pneumonia, and she herself will uh, sort of retire to Austria and will eventually die at the age of 72. So, yeah, um, it's kind of sad. It's a kind of sad story, but... Um, the real question is, who killed the doctor? Yeah, it's... Right? Uh, well, doctor... he dies under sort of mysterious circumstances. And, I mean, none of this is investigated whenever the Bourbon monarchy is restored to power because, well... Well, no. Why, well, why would you? You can't do that. Right, right. So I guess that brings us to, on a happier note, our number three entry on our top ten list and that has to do with the Happy, revolution- but nonetheless confusing. The revolutionary calendar, uh, because whenever the revolution uh, or whenever the revolutionary government comes into power, as we said before, one of the things that they're trying to do is undo the power of the Catholic Church. And one of the most radical ways in which they set about to completely reorder people's thinking has to do with with fixing the ca- well fixing the calendar. Um, really, it's screwing up the calendar. The revolutionary government decides that because so much of French culture revolves around sacred time, you have in the Christian faith, and the, particularly the Catholic, the Catholic faith, you have certain seasons. You have the season of Lent, which we've just come out of. And for, the sporadic for, saint days. And sporadic saint days and high holy days like Easter and Christmas. Mm-hmm. And these holidays are all centered around the Catholic faith. Well, if we continue to honor these holidays as public holidays, um, as we talked about last time with the cult of reason, um, that sort of it d- defeats the purpose of getting out from underneath the umbrella or the oversight of the Catholic Church. So they decide to drastically redraw the entire calendar. Under this new calendar, each day is divided into 10 hours, and it's it's very mathematically precise. This is also the same revolutionary government which will eventually uh, convert to the metric system, and everything is about being scientific, right? So each day is divided into 10 hours, each hour is divided into 100 minutes, each minute is divided into 100 seconds which is very, very confusing. Then each week is divided into 10 days. Each month then becomes mm-hmm. three weeks or 30 days. And then we completely redraw the... They didn't be- call them weeks, though. They didn't call them weeks. No, they called them... They called them decades. The, yeah, they were decades. The other thing is that you're... Uh, they they have to then rename the days of the week. So instead of lundi, mardi, mercredi, jeudi, vendredi, samedi, dimanche, you have primidi, duidi... Tridi, Kartidi, Kintidi, Sextidi, Septidi, Octidi, Nonidi, and Decadi. So, first day, first day, second day, day, third day, fourth day, day, fifth day. Onward. Sounds a bit like a high school schedule. Yeah, it's it's soulless. It's soulless is what it is. Um, So, the the months are named after largely sort of weather and agriculture. Like, what's happening Mm -hmm. agriculturally and what's happening with the weather then. I think that the most interesting thing to think about in terms of adopting a new calendar like this is how confusing it was for people who were not French. I mean, you think it was confusing to be living in France and trying to deal with adapting to an entirely new way of approaching your days, but imagine any type of international commerce. Oh, right. Well, because... Because you, 
you had to remain fluent in the old calendar, even though it wasn't your calendar anymore. Exactly. If you're in, if you're just across the English Channel, for instance, and mm -hmm. you're trying to arrange some, you're you're corresponding with someone in Paris, for example. You want to set up a meeting on, say, the 19th of August. In your calendar, that's 19th of August. In the revolutionary calendar, that's the second day of Fruit de Dor. And right. as I said before, the, they're named after either weather or something happening agriculturally. So as I said, um, August is, is Fruit de Dor, so it's the month of fruits. But this actually goes from the 18th of August to the 16th of September. The month immediately mm -hmm. preceding it is Thermidor, which is heat. Um, you also have, have months that are named after rain, after wind, after snow. I suppose the best way to explain it would be to say if you were doing the conversion, it's somewhat like going by what we would consider to be the zodiac, where their months don't correspond with ours exactly. They right. end up incorporating halves of pretty much each month and putting them together. Right. Um, each, each, month, each month it. begins, each revolutionary month begins on... Somewhere between the nineteenth like to the twentieth, nineteenth twentieth of of our months uh, in the in the Gregorian right. calendar. On top of all of that, in the Roman Catholic calendar, each day mm -hmm. has has a patron saint uh, whose saint's day is that yes. day, right? Saint Dominic is August eighth. August eighth is Dominic. Yeah. Uh, mine is. You're the... welcome for that factoid. <laughs> mine is the feast of Mary. <laughs> mine is the feast of Mary Magdalene. Um, Ooh. Yeah. But every day has has its its patron saint. Well, the way that the revolutionary government undoes this is that every single day in the calendar is now devoted to a thing, right? So instead of being born on the Feast of yeah. Mary Magdalene, I'm now born on a day devoted to ryegrass. That's that's interesting. Do you really like ryegrass? I can't say that I've ever actually had ryegrass, so... I think you're missing out. Well, you were born on a day dedicated to thistle. Yeah, okay, but that's all right. Thistle. Yeah. That's inter that's just interesting to me. I wouldn't think of thistle. I you say August eighth, I think Saint Dominic. I don't really think thistle. Oh. But I'm okay with that. It's interesting. And there are data there are days devoted to everything. There's a day devoted to watering cans. There's a day devoted to lemons, to trout, to tuna. When you hit watering cans, you know you're getting desperate. Yeah, there's a day devoted to radishes, to bees, to poplar trees. They have a day a day dedicated to vats. 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 Like big empty things that you put things into. Yeah. Also a day dedicated to grub hose. I guess that's just the way of tying in man and nature. Well, you know, this is this is an agricultural economy, so. Um, oh yeah. Uh, it's still proto-industrial, so you know. Right. Well, and then that that also brings about some really odd naming traditions as well. Of naming people. Yes. I mean, in, during the French Revolution, you went from a time of naming children after saints to trying to name them after things that made you seem patriotic. So as much as during the French Revolution, you might have been still around a bunch of Antoinettes and Jean-Louis, as children who were born during that time period grew up, you started to find children named things like Liberté, or one I read was named the 5th of August, or you could name your child Fructidor. There were even uh, several children that I read about whose name was Constitution. Aye. So you see a large change, and eventually this will go away and give way to an influx of names 
that are about the Greeks and the Romans when you get into the Napoleonic time, and that's what they were obsessed with then, was going back to the ancient times. But during the French Revolution, you have that all these children who are growing up with names pertaining to the ideals of the revolution, not so much the people. You don't hear as often, uh, you know, a child who's now going to be named Robespierre. That's not, I yeah. mean, I'm sure it existed. Right, right. You know, it's, it's one of those, it's the, the political equivalent of fad celebrity naming today. <laughs> right? It is, well, though. Yeah. It, 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 I don't know. It, I don't know. I mean, which, is, which is worse, naming your child Fructidor or naming your child, you know, Mowgli Bronx? Well, yeah, those are, well, that, that's the thing. You, know, you pilot, don't think of that. Pilot inspector. When somebody, you know, how, many Marie, how many Marie Claire's can you have in your life? you got to have a little bit of a, <laughs> of a fructidor coming in there and shaking it up. And speaking of yeah. revolutionary culture, that brings us to the number two on our list, which is dancing. You know, if the early revolution was characterized by women discovering all these cafes that were popping up all over the place... The end of the revolution and the beginning of the directory, which was a period that I kind of think is a black hole of sorts. It was when <laughs> France was post-terror, but before the rise of Napoleon. So a lot of classes will kind of brush over this area because it was very confusing for a lot of people. Uh, the directory is most commonly accused of, of gross mismanagement of the French state, which is, is what allows oh, Napoleon, Napoleon to come to power. Um, they're supposed yeah. to solve all of the economic problems and they don't get resolved. During that time, you know, people were a little less scared of being guillotined. So dancing became a big deal, but you didn't want to throw a party or to do anything that made you look too wealthy right because you didn't want to be hearkening back to the time before the revolution and make yourself look really bad so instead of that people needed to find entertainment so what happened was dance halls popped up dance halls were everywhere you could find dance halls any place you wanted to go and some of them were even advertised as having admission fees that were so low servants could attend wow but it meant that the people who attended were of all different classes and they would mingle together now there were some that catered more to upper classes or more to lower classes and things like that but the majority of it was a time where you saw people get together and even though the economy was terrible Dance instructors and musicians were doing crazy business because anybody who could squeak something out on an instrument was being hired to play at these dance halls. And anybody who could do a little bit of a country dance was being hired to teach people so they could impress others when they went to their parties. But there were some people who didn't like this because not everyone ran away from France when the revolution started. You still had people who were living in Paris who supported the monarchy. And most of these people had lost members of their family to the guillotine. And as a result, they were pretty much scarred and didn't really want to take part in all this. So although we can't know exactly how prevalent these events were, there were things called victim parties that were where supposedly you had to show up at some former monarchist's house and prove that someone in your family had died in the revolution. You would wear a red ribbon tied around your neck to show your symbolism as having been a victim of it. <laughs> and, and this shows that, that the, the culture post the terror or after the, the most violent period of the revolution was still incredibly polarized. You know, and you think about it too, actually this does segue us into our number one thing, which is something that a lot of people be interested in, which is fashion and the French Revolution. 
It was not unheard of for women to crop their hair. The idea, well, wigs were not worn as much, but they would crop their hair shorter. And that was said to be the parallel between that and being guillotined. But you also saw a lot of changes in things like there was a whole section of time where Republican people would wear jewelry that contained fragments of the destroyed Bastille. That was a big thing. It would be in your earring or in your necklace. You know what else? You know what else people used to wear during the French Revolution? Fans. Well, no, no but we can talk about fans because fans are interesting. Before the Revolution, a lot of them were made of tortoiseshell um, or mother of pearl and ivory, and they would have pictures of them on them of mythology or pastorals, like a field or maybe a castle. But then once right. you got once you get into the French Revolution, it changed. They would be wooden fans with sheets of paper on them instead of fabric that would show things like your political affiliation. There were a good number of fans that had drawings on them of different moments in French Revolutionary history, whether it was a figurative picture of like liberty or maybe the tennis court oath. But in terms of jewelry, what I was going to say was, no, no, they wore little blades to look like guillotine if you were a diehard supporter. You can laugh. Uh, no, there is a sense in which it's it's very much like wearing a cross around your neck. Oh, absolutely. Uh, they used to. You had parents who would dress their children up like little mini national guardsmen. <laughs> they did. Well, they and did. and I mean, they the, the they they adopted the tricolor all over the place. Oh I mean, god, they made yeah. Hats out of it. They made outfits out of it. They made pins out of it. Everything, everything in France became suddenly red, white, and blue. Absolutely. The other thing is that is that the um, your pants became a symbol of your political affiliation because yep. knee breeches, which were known as culottes, were uh, usually made of silk and they were the purview of the bourgeoisie, the mm-hmm. upper middle class, who were sort of the more moderate moderate left, left center in the French Revolution. Um, the really radical workers, though, did not have culottes. They didn't have the, the knee breeches. I mean, we're used to seeing these pictures of, yeah, people with like uh, pants that come to your knees and then it socks all the way down. That's a culotte. If you're a common man, though, you wear pants. You wear pants that go all the way to your ankles. And so the fact that you wear these pants, these full ankle-length pants, is a symbol of the fact that you're, you're a member of the working class and therefore a radical left-wing partisan in the French Revolution. Definitely. You had forefront changing in men's fashion. Women's fashion changed all the time. I mean, women's fashion was constantly changing no matter what was happening, but men's fashion it tended to vary on a theme. So to have what we would consider to be a normal trouser pant start to become popular was really a pretty big change. But all of this is funny because, you know, look at this and all of it is going to change in a few years anyway because Napoleon's going to come around and all of a sudden they're going to be wearing high-waisted dresses with free-flowing gauzy white gowns. You know, you're... you're oh, the empire waist. Yeah, you're... Tran- women's fashion doesn't really stop men's doesn't stop either it just seems to progress a little slower but i could be wrong on that that's just the way it looks to me when i look at the pictures this has been footnoting history if you liked our podcast be sure to check us out on the web at footnotinghistory.com like us on our facebook page and follow us on twitter at history footnote tune in next week when we'll be talking about the dutch tulip buying craze of the 1630s until then remember the best stories are always in the footnotes See you next week.